You're listening to a Wheeler Centre podcast. And it did make me start to think about, well, what, what is a story anyway and what stories do we tell about ourselves? Hi everyone, welcome. Um, I'm Emily Bishow. I'm going to be interviewing our brilliant guest and star tonight, Sophie Cunningham. Um, Before we get started, I would just like to acknowledge um, that we are meeting today on the lands of the Wurundjeri Woi Wurrung people of the Kulin Nation, uh, the traditional custodians of the land on which this event's taking place, and to acknowledge any uh, First Nations people here with us tonight. I humbly and sincerely pay my respect to their elders, past and present. Um, I'd also just like to thank the Wheeler Centre for having us um, and also to um, acknowledge the event partner tonight, which is Melbourne City Reads, and um, to thank the generous support of George and Rosa Morstan for the Melbourne City Reads uh, program. We also have our wonderful bookseller, uh, the paperback bookshop at the back there, waving to us, um, who will be selling books tonight. Uh, Sophie Cunningham is the author of nine books. Congratulations. Two of them are <laughs> um, very short. <laughs> <laughs> including City of Trees, a collection of essays that was published in 2019, and Flipper and Finnegan, the true story of how tiny jumpers saved little penguins. Great title. That's which was published a month before this devastating fever which is what we're here to talk about tonight. Uh, She teaches in the Writing a Novel course at the Faber Writing Academy with me. (laughs) Um, So, welcome, Sophie. It feels quite weird to have you formally introduce me. I know. Working working together. Um, Just to get us started, and for those of us in the audience um, or maybe listening to the recording later who haven't read the book yet, could you just introduce this devastating fever um, in your own words? I know I said you could ask anything, but that's actually the question that stumps me the most because I don't quite (laughs) quite know how to describe it. So it started off as a novel about Leonard Wolfe, who was a colonial administrator and then became better known as the husband of Virginia Woolf. And then I introduced... There's there's a contemporary character who is trying to write a novel about Leonard Woolf, a colonial administrator, Um, and she's finishing that novel during Melbourne's lockdown. So... it, it, that which allowed me to kind of talk about the echoes between the various um, world-shaking dramas that were happening back then, wars and pandemics, and and, and what we've been going through um, in in recent times. Correct. Thank you. <laughs> um, so you have worked on this novel for was it sixteen years? Many, many, many years. years. Many years. I mean, we'll, I wasn't we'll keeping it many. It. Sorry, I, I, I was. <laughs> didn't work on it the whole time. I did do other, <laughs> other things, but I first started working, playing with the idea um, when I was on a retreat, writer's retreat in Sri Lanka in 2005. Can you remember what it was that kind of was the spark at, back then for the novel? Yeah, it was uh, um, I, to research my time in Sri Lanka, uh, a friend who was from Sri Lanka, the writer Michelle de Kretzer, suggested I read Leonard Wolfe's 
diaries of his time there and his autobiography, which is a six-part autobiography, the part that was written about Sri Lanka, and, I, and his novel, The Village in the Jungle. And I did all that reading and he was kind of amazing. Mm -hmm. And, and um, partly because he was very modern, I was really struck by how modern, contemporary his voice was and his sensibility was. And I found I started researching him while I was on the... I kept wanting to know more, more about him and, and understand him a bit better mm -hmm. um, and didn't really do so much work on the project I was meant to be <laughs> working, working on, which, so I, which way, I did right? finish and was pu published. That was my novel, Bird. Mm -hmm. And so do you, is it kind of <coughs> the figure of Leonard, really, that's kept you interested? Yes, even in... though as... Um, He was very interested in, in, I suppose, things that I'm interested in. Yeah. And so I do have this slightly strange sense of growing, because well, it's, it's taken me so long, as I have grown older. I was reading Leonard Wolf growing older, and so he, he yeah. sort of became almost like an imaginary friend, to be honest, which is something I riff on a bit in the book, that, that, that there's a kind of um, the author's imagined version of, of Leonard Wolf as a, a, um, separate to the historical version. And I do know that when I when I was a kid, I did have an imaginary friend called Mr. Nobody, and um, <laughs> so in some ways, I think Leonard Wolf. And so, when, you know, if I stole something <laughs> out of the pantry, <laughs> I'd say Mr. Nobody did it. And um, in some ways, I realised that Lud was turning Leonard Wolf into Mr. Nobody. Um, can you tell us more about? You know, you said that he was kind of amazing and thinking about things that, you know, you were thinking about now. Can you talk more about? That? Yeah, um, well, two, two. The way he wrote about the build up to World War One, which was actually after he'd left uh, Sri Lanka or Ceylon, uh, was really interesting to me and it sort of captured how we were feeling in the West after the um, Twin Towers came down, after, um, after September 11, that sense of everything changing. And I just got such a strong sense of the repression of the Victorian age and this mm. real excitement that these people, him, him and other members of the Bloomsbury set, had, um, partly because the Edwardian times were... Um, they were young adults. Edwardian times, they were literally going out dancing and having parties and, you know... The, that kind of puritanical um, sense of it being a very puritanical culture, it kind of was lifting and mm. they were really enjoying that very, very much, um, creatively, sexually, all the different ways, you could, you know, young people enjoy themselves and then World War One came and just bang, mm. <laughs> it just all stopped and he captured that sense of... And it reminded me, I remember, when, when um, after September 11, you just... It had that sense everything is going to change now yeah. and indeed it has sort of a new era, political era, did really kind of, for the West anyway, mm. I think, we yeah. entered. So there, there were kind of lots of what times when his description of things would remind me of, of, of um, how I felt about things that were happening in the contemporary world when I was living in the States, which was, um, well, I lived there during the, the campaign, the Trump campaign, and um, his descriptions of Mussolini were so like Donald Trump. He, he wrote, wrote, and so it just really the whole time I was researching, he consistently 
his observations. He wrote a lot about Palestine. He warned about the problems of, of Israel and Palestine long before. I, I kept finding that he was very um, writing about things that we're still talking about today and still not necessarily any closer to resolving. It's not like he solved these things or had anything hugely amazing to say about them, but he observed them and he wrote about yeah. them very, very vividly. And the other thing that he did that um, really struck me was The Village in the Jungle is a extraordinary novel about a village in the jungle. And uh, uh, it's very blunt about human sexuality, but also the main character is a, is a woman of colour and she's very poor. And I don't think I've read, had ever, I've read very few English novels that have even, even attempted to imagine what it's like to be um, I mean, I know that that can be problematic, but nonetheless, he was attempting to understand what it was like to be, rather than making her the other, he was attempting, mm. giving her a voice. Mm. And that's an example, I suppose, of how modern I found his thinking. He's also, I do have to, um, it sounds like I'm, I'm, you know, waxing lyrical about him. His second novel, The Wise Virgins, was very bad, and I would like <laughs> to make sure that no one here ever reads it. So it's not like it, um, everything he did was, you know, he could be slightly absurd, which mm. I do kind of write a little bit about as well. Yeah. Can you talk about how the novel sort of developed over the time that you were yeah, well, working I'd, on it? Yeah, I'd originally planned to make it a book about his time in Salon mm -hmm. and his return to England where he met someone he'd met a couple of times when he was a teenager and uh, ended up marrying, Virginia Woolf, and then within months of their marriage she had a massive nervous breakdown she needed 24-hour care um she he was sometimes it would take her six hours a day to feed her um because uh, you would probably describe her as anorexic the, the the these days um so he didn't necessarily handle it as well as he could have but he handled it better than a lot of people handled those things at the time and world war one broke out so I wanted to try and capture that sense of him having been one person. He, and he lived very differently in Salon. He was a different person. Um, he escaped the English class system mm. temporarily and he also was top of the heap. I mean, he has probably enacted the class system in some ways. But um, he was a Jewish man and that meant that he was not taken as seriously. Um, well, in England he didn't have, have, have the same... Human rights, mm. um, and while there was there was anti-Semitism, um, in fact, people used to write about not wanting to be ruled by a Jew. Um, local people would write that. I think he could be distance himself a bit more from it because it was not his culture or mm -hmm. something. So he could kind of be himself. So I kind of wanted to write a novel about someone who had attempted to engage with the broader world and then had gone gone back to England and you know had. The war and and a marriage that was very very traumatized and just end it, keep it as a short novel. So it was a sort of more conventional historical. Yeah, and it was novel. just really stressed. Almost it was a novella. Yeah. It was almost like a long short story, and I was going to also. I was very interested in Dada and various things, so I was going to make it montage. I then was going to do it all using all real material, real diaries, real letters, and try and build the story mm. as a kind of pastiche from... And there's some elements of that still. But apart from anything else, the copyright implications of that would have just 
I don't know that I would have had the skill to pull it off, but the copyright implications of that would have been just impossible. It was yeah. hard enough getting copyright for, mm. and expensive enough to, for what I did use of their real diaries and letters. But one of the things that I, I did research that period very intensely and I also became fascinated with the way that their... Um, as is often the way with these things, their, their, um, his and Virginia's uh, early romance was often on the page. and mm. But also he would tell her stories about his time in Salon. So he kind of embroidered that as a way of trying to impress her. Mm, and he did tell one story about um, a boy who um, was drowned by putting stones in his pocket. And I then, of course, re- remembered... and. Virginia was very interested in this story about the stones in the pocket, and that is, in fact, how she ended up dying. And and more, and, and she put stones in her own pocket pockets. And um, the um, in her own in her fiction, characters who are romantically involved say things to each other that are things that she and Leonard said to each other in letters. So I became really interested mm. by the way that their their um, published texts were kind of captured and their real lives also captured their kind of personal correspondence. Mm. And is that what kind of then led you into sort of bringing in the writer character? No, the writer character was more... I don't don't really know what the writer... So I did have... I mean, I wrote some really great scenes, but just because something's interesting and just because scenes are well-written doesn't mean you have a novel, really. To my horror, when I when I, re- when I realised that, you're like, how hard can it be? Um, because it started to feel very static, and uh, like I was just recreating se- scenes from history which had been written about. Because there's so many hundreds or thousands of books have been written, particularly about Virginia. And so then I did a version <laughs> where um, it's embarrassing, um, where. Instead, there wasn't the author, there was a taxidermist who was making these kind of dioramas with Virginia related in them. And I actually went and looked at human taxidermy when I was in London once to research that. That that didn't make the final cut. That, 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 um, Amazing. Where I was trying to kind of make something out of the static nature of how I was recreating history. And then, yeah. but really the author did come partly through, I think, desperation. Yeah. I'm not sure. And also because I just thought I, – I just had an idea for how I could make it work and the pandemic and I just basically finished it after all those years in three months. Mm, amazing. Yeah. Well, I mean, from my perspective, it is in perfect form. <laughs> I think it's the, you know, it's the perfect novel for now and I'm glad that you went through all those iterations mm. and came to this. <laughs> well, thing, it certainly taught me that things take the time they need. Yeah. And then I'm really pleased that I, you know, because at each time I had a, I thought, I think I've done this, which probably seriously happened twice before the last iterations. Um, and I would show it to people and they'd say, oh, no, not really. <laughs> and um, I think when I was a younger writer, I just would have pushed on through and mm. published it anyway. But I just thought, well, you know, the book doesn't, the world doesn't need another book doesn't need another book by me and it certainly doesn't need another book that I know is not good enough by me. So that made it easier to hold off. Yeah. Well, would you like to share a little section yes. with us? Yes, and I'll, I'll read a little bit in which um, the first time that Alice kind of shifts from the um, 
from her present, which is researching a novel about Leonard Wolfe in Sussex to, um, to the past. On the last day, day of Alice's walk, she moved, finally moved into a landscape that had not changed for centuries. Emerald green set atop dazzling pure white, chalk cliffs plunging down to pebbled beaches, violet stars, tiny daisies perhaps, growing so it seemed out of the chalk itself, vermilion, white, an undulating series of chalk cliffs billowed along the coast all the way to Eastbourne. She walked up the flanks of the first sister then looked across the English Channel. The sense that nothing had changed, the beauty, the height, made her feel vertiginous. This, this was why she walked. Once Alice's dizziness subsided, she looked down at the rocky beach. There was a pile of clothes lying there on the pebbles. The day was warm, hot even, but the ocean, Alice knew, would be close to freezing. She made her way down to the water, stepping around an old bicycle that had been thrown carelessly to one side of the path. The pile of clothes consisted of an old pair of cords, leather shoes and a plain cotton shirt. A second pile of clothes lay next to the first, a detail she hadn't been able to make out out from up high. This pile was stranger. It looked like a uniform of some sort from a vintage costume hire place. Alice considered the channel. It didn't seem as clear as it had from her former vantage point. Rain or perhaps a sea mist was rolling in from France. She loved the idea of that, of weather crossing the channel. In the mist you could see two men. It was hard to make out any details, but they were breaststroking towards each other, calling out as they swum. It's war, one man shouted, his voice carrying across the water across the century. The second man stopped swimming, seemed to be treading water. Are you sure, he answered, before an he called before answering his own question. Of course it is, expected, has been since Sarajevo. But still, the shock. Will you sign up? Leonard went on to ask the man, for there was no doubt it was him, which meant the other man out there, Alice understood, was the local policeman. Leonard, she knew, had ridden his bike from Asherham to Seafood, Seaford to bathe the day the war was declared because it was unseasonably hot. He would, Alice also knew, despite the heat, walk between Asherham and Lewes, no small distance, several times over the next few days to get more news about this war with the Germans. I will, though the force also needs me. You, sir, are you ready to fight? The conversation carried clearly through time and over distance. Alice's legs gave way. She sat down for a moment, closed her eyes, began to shiver. When she opened her eyes, she seemed to be in an old warehouse in London. I'm not sure if I should... Um, I can, oh, then then um, I go into some detail about... He's um, standing, he's presenting his case to the doctors that he should not have to go and fight in the war. And they asked to see a letter. So he um, brings them the letter. And so I'm now going to read it, which is a real letter written about him. I hereby certify that I have this day seen and examined Mr L.S. Wolfe. He first consulted me in March 1914 when I found that he was suffering from marked nerve, nerve exhaustion symptoms. He had a general tremor, which I regard as a permanent one, which was most mark, marked in his hands and arms. Sleep was defective and he had severe headaches. He was improved to a certain extent, but the tremor, as I expected, persists and headaches easily come on with fatigue. Owing to his highly nervous state, I have no hesitation in saying that I regard him as quite unfit for military service, and that if he attempts it, he will almost certainly break down within a short time. I may further add that his wife has had several severe mental breakdowns during the last 16 years, and I've been consulted about her on many occasions since 1913. Her husband, Mr L.S. Wolfe, has personally nursed her through these attacks, and she is still in a highly unstable condition if his care is removed. 
And if his care is removed, I'm of the opinion that the effect will be highly detrimental to her and may bring about a severe mental breakdown. I may add that it is only in cases where I know the personal element to be of such vital importance that I'm willing to express such an opinion to a tribunal, Dr Morris Craig. By the time they finished reading, Leonard was so racked with tremors that one of the doctors wondered out loud if he was putting it on, but the others could see he was not. They waived their dismissal. Exempt. Alice woke, curled up on the pebbles. Had she been dreaming? It was one thing to have a vivid imagination, but this felt like another thing entirely. Freezing water licked at her feet. There were no swimmers. The clothes had gone, the weather broken, and the mist she'd seen transformed into the storm that was now upon her. She got up, leaned into the wind, and kept walking. She had a way to go yet before she reached her destination. Mm. Wonderful. And that was, I think, partly about the... Um, he was very humiliated by that. Um, he, he actually wanted to fight in the war, but couldn't. Um, and that also set him apart from Bloomsbury, because most of the um, Bloomsbury set were pacifists and didn't want to be in the mm. war, but he actually would have would have fought. He was mm. not a he was not a pacifist. I love in that section, which is something you do sort of throughout the novel, the sense of different times kind of coexisting simultaneously, the way that you kind of just ease us into that through that um, I think you say he called across space and across the century or mm. whatever. It's beautiful. Um, and there are also parts, as you mentioned, where Leonard and Virginia appear to Alice as kind of ghosts or, in Virginia's uh, case, as a sort of skeletal yes. um, apparition. apparition. Yep. Yes. Um, can you talk about this sort of theme of, like, haunting in the novel and, and how sort of doing this research and, and going to these places and then even just being here because there are parts where that sort of simultaneity is happening in, in Melbourne as well, how that sort of changed your thinking about place, if, I, if it did? It, the, the ghosts I had slightly less control over. That, um, <laughs> they... I. Because I a couple of scenes where Leonard just sort of I ended up writing him into the scene and would think oh, I think that works. So he's not really a ghost in that scene. It's more that she's seeing something that really did happen. He really did, you know, walk down there and was swimming, and the local policeman told him that there was a war. Um, and then I had a scene where he 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 was obsessed with record keeping. And um, Alice, the author, is always trying to work out if she'll ever make money from writing her novel. And so he he um, occasionally would appear and talk about the sales figures of his and Virginia's books and how much they did or didn't make and whatever. And But that was it, really. And then um, – and it wasn't quite enough to make it the idea work. It was sort of a flourish and I didn't quite know what to do with it. Um, but then when I was in Bloomington, Indiana, which is more recent, that was in 2018, I think, um, I I don't mean that Virginia... I actually started talking to Virginia, but um, I, the day I arrived there, my father died, which was, you know, was a shock. Well, he was sick. Anyway, he died. And so that's a kind of strange headspace to be in when you're alone for some months, sitting in a Midwestern town in a library. And um, so I suppose I was in a slightly morbid frame frame of mind. 
and I was reading lots of letters about um, by Vita Sackville West uh, in which she would describe her passion for Virginia to her husband. And I found myself reading those letters in a slightly pervy way and I started to just feel <laughs> a bit gross. Because like, it was, it was not even really relevant to the book. I was just like, when, when are they going to get together? You know, so, And I just... The absurdity of that, yeah. kind of, I just suddenly imagined Virginia saying, what are you doing, <laughs> you know, like, and being very irritated. And she, in general, was very irritated by people trying to um, put any labels on her. And, um, and I was very aware that so much of what I'd been reading about her were people's theories about Virginia. Yeah that she wasn't breastfed enough and that's one of the reasons why she had nervous exhaustion or um, six weeks, for those who are wondering, which is exactly the amount of time that I was breastfed for. So maybe that's part of my connection with that story. Um, um, you know, was she a lesbian? Wasn't she a lesbian? It's just everyone's theories. And, I, and she used yeah. to hate that stuff. Mm. And when, when journalists, when she was famous enough to be of interest to the media, they would sometimes find journalists in the garden trying to look in their back windows and stuff. And she used to really... <laughs> so I kind of... That character, I started to have fun and I just realised I needed to have more fun with the material, that it wasn't an academic book, it wasn't a history book, that most of this material was in the public domain and that I should just relax and let myself have a bit more fun mm. with it. Mm. And so I didn't really... Then I just sort of wrote the ghosts without overly thinking through why or what they were doing. I mm. sort of let that be a slightly less conscious process of the right part of the writing process. Mm. Um, I certainly wasn't, to be honest, thinking about um, the pandemic and because all those kind of things. The ghosts did come before the pandemic. Mm. Yeah, but it works so well just as a sort of literalisation of that feeling of, you know, the past being present, you know, particularly in these places and, that you inhabit so beautifully in there. And it also actually, one thing that it does, which I'm really pleased it did, but a friend of mine commented on this and I was really grateful she did, but it, um, it, I really didn't want Virginia to be a victim. Mm. And when I talked about that kind of reading things in a pervy way, there was partly a slightly kind of reading a lot about her suicide as well. That is kind of taking yeah. particular tropes or cliches about this is what her life was like and that how reductive that that was. Um, I'm totally blank as the point about the point I was going to make. What was I saying? Um, um, about the past being yeah. Um, oh, sorry, I can't remember now. Oh, well. It'll come back to me. We can but, move. Um, yeah, um, that's right. I really the the, the ghost um, the ghost allowed her to have a kind of yeah to be alive. She's alive for the whole now. book. Yeah. So yeah, even though the character that the fiction the fictional historical version dies, she continues to be a very lively presence through the book. As as does Leonard. Well, less and she's lively, obviously continued her reading as well. Which she <laughs> continues to read. She's read um, yes, the Argonauts by <laughs> has has views on the whole LGBTI. <laughs> situation. So yeah. good. Yeah. <laughs> um, something that I really noticed uh, in the book was that there's a lot of sort of um, astrological symbolism. So there's like the comet, there's a blood moon, there's a meteor shower, there's lots of kind of moments when uh, characters are sort of looking at the night sky. And I guess my reading of that or what it kind of, the impact on me as a reader was it 
sort of pulled me out of the, you know, the drama or often actually the kind of real sadness of what was happening in the human realm of the story and into a kind of sense of, you know, a different time scale or sort of I'm glad that deep you... time or something. That was part of this. That's what I was trying to do. I'm very pleased. But I also am do love that stuff. And Leonard Wolf did write an amazing um, series of, of um, passages in his diaries about seeing, ha- seeing Halley's Comet or Halley's Comet back in 1908, 19, or 1909. Um, and he, it was much more dramatic. Like you could see it in the in the in the in the um, in the daytime, the tail hung very heavily in the, in the sky and um, people th- thought, it was a bit like Y2K, people thought that um, the Earth was going to go through the tail of the comet and, and everyone was going to die or something. Mm. I can't even remember now. what, But it was just kind of crazy stuff. So it, that partly reminded me of, of, of Y2K. But um, of when I went to try to see Halley's Comet when I was like 19... And it was in the 80s and um, <laughs> my boyfriend at the time and I got had a joint and then was looking through binoculars going, is that it? No, I, I can see it, I can see it and became convinced we could see it. But we never saw it. I mean, no one saw it. It was almost impossible to see when it came back in the 80s. And um, that was very disappointing because I knew that I, that was going to be my only chance unless I lived till I was about 120 or, or something. Um, but... I did also finish writing this book when we were um, when my wife and I were living in Mount Macedon, and the night skies there are amazing. Mm. So there was quite a lot of, and, and we were in lockdown. Well, so there was quite not an inconsiderable, inconsiderable amount of time spent. There was that amazing eclipse. Mm. Uh, there was there was the, the earthquake, mm. which was frankly the highlight of the whole pandemic. That was such great. <laughs> 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 um, and there was also. Um, and this happened towards the very end of writing it, but I did, I did see Venus scintillating. What? It was amazing. <laughs> well, the, 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 um, the, the star was rising, but it was looking... Um, I could see red, like flashes of, of blue and red and green, and I just thought it was my eyesight getting really bad, <laughs> which it is. And, um, but then I looked on the internet and they said, yes, that at certain times of year, certain angles, whatever, Venus scintillates. And that's where the word scintillating comes from. So, you know, wow. I mean, lots of little... Yeah, so lots of... And it, but it does... I mean, I did find those things. Um, I do find those things do help you get perspective. Yeah. Yeah, especially that sort of sense of, you know, there, there have been many, many times in the past when people have thought they were living in end times, the end of civilization, mm-hmm. and it keeps going. Yes. <laughs> At least and, um, yeah. until now. <laughs> Who knows? <laughs> yeah, no, and, and I have a planet app. You know, I wander around with my planet app and mm. point out planets. That's <laughs> I think we should move on. <laughs> <laughs> um, I wanted to ask you about form in in this book because you really kind of play with form in really, I think, exciting ways here. Um, and I guess the fact that you've brought in this writer figure makes it become. Uh, a book about writing itself Um, but I think also particularly because of the subject matter there's a really deep thinking through of the the novel and its relationship with imperialism particularly 
Um, and at one point, Ghost Leonard visits Alice and says, I have come to discuss the future of the novel with you. You are aware, yes, that the kind of novel you've been trying to write is a product of our imperial culture. Virginia had the skills to try and present a new vision in her work, and I've been shocked to learn that literary fashion has returned to the Victorian model after all we did to break free of it. <laughs> um, can you talk a bit about like the thinking that you did about the novel as a form while you were writing yeah, this? Yeah, um, well, one thing I'd say in that sort of recurring little moments in the, in the book is that she's teaching her. And I, I'm pretty sure that there are a couple of um, writing a novel students here and like I don't know, what, what do I call it? How to write? I call it something similar <laughs> in, in, in the book. TM. Um, TM with a trademark. Um, I have really enjoyed teaching because it makes you think about those things rather than just take them for granted. And, mm. and so... I, I have increase, increasingly over the years found myself thinking what even not what even is a novel, but what even is narrative, and I first started thinking about that um, when I was writing City of Trees, really, and it really was this uh, kind of well, f f felt profound for me at the time was when I was um, caring for Dad, my Dad, when he had um, quite advanced dementia, he. I could always tell where what he was he, his his stories weren't connected to narrative in the way that we think of them you know the way you think of narrative so he would start to the stories would half start all over the place and you kind of so it was fragmenting the narrative mm. we all tell about ourselves this was all fragmenting and I found that really interesting because he never stopped being himself mm. to um on some essential level and I knew him well enough to know where the different stories were coming from. And it did make me start to think about, well, what, what is a story anyway and what stories do we tell about ourselves? So I was, so I was thinking quite a lot about that and that's partly the reason why that was, a, that was going to be even more discontinuous. Those essays were kind of an attempt to kind of um, mess up narrative flow or narrative, narrative structure. But also the fiction, non-fiction thing just started to kind of... I started to really struggle with because it was so hard. And, but I had set myself this task. But what, writing fiction about people that so much has been written about, how do you really write fiction about them? Isn't it just non-fiction? What is, you know, so I found, I was thinking about that for the, whole, for the whole project. But then towards the very end, I did just really find myself, there's something neat and resolved about novels and that's just, that doesn't relate to lives and I just started to think about how that fits into the, I don't know, systems of colonialism, any, any kind of story, any kind of culture where you're very anxious to repress certain parts of history and build up sort of heroes or build up kind of other kind of hero narratives anyway um, is partly about repression. And so I kind of want... Whereas Augustan novels are much more kind of all over the place in ways that are quite... Which are the first when novels first started being written. I did do, back in the 80s, did some of this stuff at, at uni. Um, and they were kind of chaotic and they weren't really novels as we think of them today. Mm. And I actually much realised I much more... Pref I preferred them, really. Mm. More, I, I do think that writing should be fun and there's something very serious about some novel novels and so I did want to kind of just like they should be fun to read and fun to, fun to do mm. otherwise I'm not quite sure what the point is yeah I don't mean it has to it has to it can't be serious but it, 
the process of, of creation itself. It's, it's not torture and it's not like a sitting an exam and getting it exactly right. We shouldn't feel like that. So this kind of fractured form or discontinuous kind of form feels more sort of true to... It feels more true to me. Yeah. But also the other, the other thing that happened... Um, I mean, so not all the different kind of ideas that I'm raising in the novel are kind of fully resolved, but I, when I was in Macedon, it was such a colonial space. It's very beautiful, but I was surrounded by oaks. Um, there were a lot of kangaroos and there were a lot of eucalypts further up, further away from, from where but we were living. We had lots of oaks around. There were foxes. There was stag. And I suddenly thought, I feel like I'm in Kew Gardens, which mm. was a place I really love, but um, it's very English, very English kind of. Um, and I just started to think about how much of the way I live my life as a settler Australian is, in fact, English, a kind yeah. of, trans uh, kind of um, putting English, transplanting of English behaviours on, 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 onto this land and, indeed, onto the way we tell stories and those kind of things. Mm. Uh, there was something about the physical landscape at Macedon that, that made me, was making me think about it. Mm. Because then just up, up the hill you had, the, had Mount Macedon and, and, and um, there were a couple of sort of big, big old volcanic um, rock formations, or Hanging Rock being famously being one of them. And um, time on, in those places does feel different, partly because they're such amazingly old formations and that was so different to that kind of more curated, um, the curated gardens which that place is famous mm. for. I do find that uh, the kind of physical landscapes I'm in have a big effect on, on my work. Can you talk more about that? Well, I suppose that's... Um, that I don't find that I think through things like the novel for example, I don't necessarily do my best thinking when I'm reading about something. Mm. It's more that it sort of happens out of the best thinking happens out of the corner of your eye when you're doing something else. Yeah. Um, and for me, that's often walking. Occasionally, I'd, you know, occasionally it has been gardening as well, but kind of being physically active um, and you're kind of thinking away, and so that somehow means that the the, the physical activity somehow kind of joint gets into involved in the creative process in a way that I can't quite mm. explain. Yeah. I mean, originally, *The City of Trees*, which ended up being a book about trees, was originally going to be a walking book, but then I realised that there had been a, a wave of hundreds of walking books, and I'd missed that <laughs> missed that particular <laughs> boat, so to speak. Um, so. I, I, yeah, I find if I'm staring something in the face, a problem, a writing, you know, any kind of issue, I don't necess necessarily solve it. But somehow mm. just being being somewhere and thinking about other things and looking at other things um, does solve help, help me solve problems. Mm. But it means you have to be really literal. I mean, I find, like, so with my second, with this book, I walked, I mean, it wasn't a very, it was quite hard, but no, I, mean, I walked the South Downs Way. Um, which helped me create a lot of that kind of material set in Sussex and was mm. a really important way of me trying to understand Leonard and Virginia who did spend so much of their life walking. In fact, in general, the English, even the really one, ones that were meant to be unhealthy and had bad asthma would still walk 20 mm. miles in a day and kind of treat it quite differently. But with um, Bird, I 
did a trek in the Himalayas, which was really not hugely relevant to the book. But um, I cut, so I called a lot of the kind of physical activity I kind yeah. of think of as research, though it's a bit of a stretch. Mm. So interesting. Um, well, I'd really like to talk to you about how you sort of translated all of the sort of material and the archival research that you did into the actual sort of scenes that uh, appear in the book, particularly in the parts of the novel where you inhabit the characters of um, Leonard and Virginia, you know, as sort of fully fleshed yeah. people. Um, there are, you know, scenes containing dialogue and their inner thoughts and, um, yeah, I, I found myself really wondering while I was reading it how you kind of constructed those. So I was just wondering if you could maybe just read a little bit for us um, from page 148 to just give a taste of this and then maybe kind of talk us through the process of constructing these scenes. Okay, well, this is um, a scene um, when I referred to, um, when Virginia was in a... She had two distinct phases to her breakdown, which was when for about three years, and in one of them she was very voluble and one of them she didn't say anything. So this was the phase where she was more... Talking more. Mm -hmm. Husband and wife sat in silence for a moment before Leonard said, the doctors and I are in agreement. We must abandon thoughts of children immediately. This is not your decision to make, Virginia said. Her relative calm belied the violence she heard in his word. words. Leonard's tusks had gored her, were tearing out her innards out. She began to shake uncontrollably from head to toe. From head to toe. Sometimes the two of them went hours together like this, two trembling animals on the point of extinction. It got worse. Virginia began to keen in a long, high-pitched moan, reminding Leonard for a moment of women from the village, more animal than human. You are murdering me. You are being overly dramatic. You don't like children, Leonard countered. I love my, my nephews. I would love my own children. It is the children of strangers who get on my nerves. It is you, Virginia's voice was, ri was rising to the occasion, who does not like children. I like children very much, Leonard said stiffly. <clears throat> One thing I regret in, <clears throat> regret in not being a woman is that I can't bear children. It is perhaps the world we would bring, bring them into about which I have my doubts. I don't think you know the terrible things that can happen to a child. Losing a mother at 13 isn't a terrible thing. A half-sister at 15, a father at 19, and a brother who was only 26 when he died... Do I not have a half-sister locked away somewhere in a madhouse? Now she thought to mention it. Tragedy has haunted my family, yet you talk to me as a woman who knows nothing of the world. Virginia he knew, he thought, that life was something she could not see, that she could not understand the meanness and sordidness of it. But what was, what was her illness, if not something mean and sordid? It reduced her. I did not mean to suggest... You poisoned things. Virginia turned away from him, unable to look into his mournful, anxious face for a moment longer. Thank you. So, yeah, can you talk to us about how you went about constructing scenes like that? So did you sort of draw on letters and diaries to yeah, kind of Yeah, there was a lot what... written about the decision to have children because, um, and it was quite a... Um, it was an important scene for me to write, I mean, not just because it's important to Leonard and Virginia, but because it, in, I think when I first started writing the novel, I was like on Team Leonard and I wasn't necessarily fully engaging with the ways in which he did behave very badly and I, it's not going to be a real novel if I don't really 
engage with that. And a lot has been her breakdown, the, the, the more serious, uh, soon after that conversation, she tries to commit suicide for the first time when they're together. And a lot's been, and in his uh, biography, Leonard wrote about how they made the decision to have children together, um, not to have children together as a couple, but that's in fact not true. He, he went to a series of doctors until he... He went to about eight doctors until one doctor said, oh, I don't think it would be very good for any... See, see, I've got, you know, I've got a certificate or whatever. Mm. Um, so he was int- just being very authoritarian and trying to impose himself upon her. So I really tried to imagine... And because her me- her mental health was so kind of chaotic, people probably patronise... I mean, people did patronise her and, 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 and wouldn't let her make decisions. And so um, I suppose I just found... I, so I put together all those... Lots of those kind of complicated yeah. feelings, I suppose. Mm. And, um, yeah. And did she write about... No, that that she didn't, Um, and she did in fact... I think the thing about children was difficult for her because she... um, It was difficult for them because she didn't actually want to have... um, I had to get only technical sexual intercourse with Leonard, so part of the issue was how do we even get pregnant? And um, she was... She'd started to say. Everyone just assumed. I think it was partly part of the whole thing was was just assumed that they would have children. And Leonard actually, understandably, didn't know that she would be able to manage to have kids. She was in her mid thirties. They'd married quite late, and um, so you understood to some extent where he was coming from. But she, I think, she just always assumed she would have children. But in later life, she did actually express a certain relief that she didn't have children or that they hadn't had children. However, she did. She and Lena were both incredibly close to Vanessa's, to, to their nieces and nephews mm-hmm. and um, and played quite some role in, in their parenting. So they did have a relationship, I mean, close relationships to children. But she did seem to, I think, understand that it gave her the freedom to write yeah. and, and really what she wanted to be was a writer. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's, that's really all she really wanted to do. Mm. Yeah. So um, she probably would have ended up agreeing with him, but it was more the method of mm. it, which he um, chose to, to pass on the information. Mm. Mm. It's a done deal. But um, it is... I mean, in, in, the whole process of this novel was, is weird in that it took... I mean, uh, like I worked on it for a very long time and so it sounds as if there was a huge amount of conscious... But it's a bit like you you lay the ground, you do a huge amount of reading and then you just kind of write the scenes sort yeah. of almost over there and don't – you st- at a certain point you have to stop referring to the notes and just write the scene as you would write a scene. Yeah. And and allow yourself to kind of connect to the emotional force yeah. of the scene. So the, that conversation <clears throat> essentially you yes. made up knowing the, yeah. the reality yeah, but not totally. directly based on – but it was also was a scene where I um, realised that in earlier versions of the novel I had written her much more as a victim, kind of being totally passive. And she was um, part of what was important in that really was her insisting that mm. she did have some position and that yeah. she couldn't just be walk- walked over. Mm. 
Um, well, shortly we are going to open up for questions. So I'm just going to put that out there so that you can start thinking about what you would like to ask Sophie yourselves. Um, but just another question from me. Um, so you obviously spent a lot of time researching this <laughs> <Sorry>. novel <laughs> um, and there's a lot of praise of librarians in the novel, which I love. Um, in fact, you made Alice's wife a librarian, which is indeed. excellent. Um, and at one point you write, Alice would find herself wondering about the archives of the future when rather than the expansive letters she spent her days reading, there would be at best these stray assortments of fragmented messages and at worst no trace left at all. And it really made me think, you know, about, um, about that, the, the future of the archive and I was wondering whether this has sort of made you think differently about, you know, your own archive, the way that you treat things like messages and emails? And yeah, it, 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 it has at different times. Um, <laughs> you have a whole lot of... But there's a lot of crap in text messages which you possibly wouldn't write. I mean, like, you know, that was great, lol. I mean, whatever. <laughs> you know, I, mean I don't say lol anymore, but I Sell did. it to the in state in, library. In earlier, <laughs> earlier messages. Um, so um, I did... I have... I did, but I used to write a lot of letters and actually I have put those into the net, some of those, if the ones that are relevant <coughs> to my creative or my work as a publisher um, are in the National Library already. So I had started to organise things and, and that had several, partly because of the space, to yeah. be honest. It's not that I was desperate to... Um, but you actually have to ask, well, have to ask permission and you have to make decisions about when people can read things and all that kind of stuff so I did start to think about all that and then I suppose over the years I thought because I think the line in the in that you just read about um worst of all left with no traces at all that doesn't actually seem to be so terrible now I have to say <laughs> I mean I'm not sure that um but I do try and keep keep um track of of, of things um digitally and and try and, you know, I've been talking to people about trying to rescue a whole lot of, I mean, really interesting stuff from my early days at McPhee Gribble, which was in the late 80s, which is on floppy disks and trying to get that material mm. out. But what, what with, with things as they are today, I'm just really not. Also because, um, weirdly, this came up when I was having a kind of, kind of a conversation with some friends about stuff we shouldn't have, you know, there was sort of like gossip and um, it was all on WhatsApp and I had to actually say to one of my friends, you, you're just acting as if this is a totally private space, but I think that's very naive. I do think that, that um, the digital form is not a totally mm. private this is the space. And the so, <laughs> yeah, so, I mean, I think, you know, I do think about my com communications, I suppose, in general. But, um, and I used to print out my manuscripts and do things by hand and keep them. But, frankly, libraries don't want that stuff anymore because there's just – there are too many – I mean, unless you, I don't know, win the book or something, there's like they don't need a whole lot of, like, versions of my second novel with a few proofreading marks on it. There's, no, there's not storage space. I mean, so in, in general, I think libraries are struggling to maintain the space for, for archives. And so that was, that was actually something that um, with my, my biological father died was having to be – dealt with, with, with people who were dealing with his archives and I've also helped someone else with their archives. So, yeah, I do... Th 
it's it's hard to know because I think we like to think that every everything is is precious, but um, it's only precious to a very limited number of people. So Leonard Wolf's archives are amazing because he would write on a um, little kind of decks of cards every piece of music that he and Virginia listened to. Um, you know, whether they like classical music and kind of what they listened to on different nights so that they could keep track of of what they were listening to. He kept all these... He used to breed dogs and cats and he kept all the breeding certificates. And um, I had wanted to kind of write a whole lot of... You know, he was very into his animals and I thought I could do some amazing research because there was a big box which was dogs and cats and I thought, oh, there's going to be some lovely stuff here, but it was just like endless weird breeding certificates about who who is going to mate his spaniel with. <laughs> kind of like... So it's sort of... So, look, that was interesting to me, but there's only so much space in the world so I'm not I don't quite know what I think about archives mm. anymore quite how you like with photos it's the same issue really there's now millions and millions of photos yeah. in the public sphere and how do, how does one work out which are, are worth keeping and I don't I mean it's I find it interesting to think about but I don't have a clear I haven't got landed anywhere mm. with it yeah it is I mean it is really fascinating though I mean I th- even just hearing you talk about the different iterations of this novel and how, in a way, you've kind of found ways to weave. I have bits kept of track those. of. I have kept track of all the, all the earliest drafts. I don't print yeah. it out anymore. Any, what I do in, out anymore, but I do keep track of different drafts. Partly because it's useful. Also, mm. you suddenly remember a scene you wrote ten years ago and think, "I need that scene back mm. and go back into it." So I do. I am fairly di- um, diligent about mm. that kind of stuff. But then you lose lose lots of things. I mean, you know, something mm. goes wrong and you you lose bits and pieces. You get a new computer and you fail to move everything across. Yeah. Um, but I also remember when um when we before we moved to America, I um I had thousands of books, which are books I'd worked through my work in the publishing industry, and it's like I can never get rid of them. But it was like like insane unless you could live in a house that had a library about this size, like what was I going to do with them? And I ended up giving them to libraries, giving them to friends, leaving some of them outside in boxes and people could pick them up and I felt great. did actually, Mm. you know, I kind of thought, oh, I've been dragging, I felt like I've been dragging the past around with me and actually I didn't really need my copy of, you know, Great Expectations (laughs) from when I was at Monash Uni in 84. Like, you know, like, yes, you you can't, it's just stuff. So I I have, in fact, I used to think that archives are really important and now I just think, oh, it's just more stuff. Mm. I don't know. What do you think? Well, I mean, I think you couldn't have written this book without Mm. the archives of the past and... Yeah, it's just really interesting to think about, I think. And you do think about it in the book, you know, which is, yeah, yeah, a really interesting part of the narrative. Um, Well, let's open up for questions. Uh, We have a couple of microphones, so if you have a question, just wait until you get handed one of those. If you don't, Emily and I can, you know. (laughs) Keep nattering. Keep nattering. (laughs) Oh, we have one at the front. Can you just raise your hand a little bit more? Um, I, I've, I'm like 10 pages from the end of the book, so 
um, no spoilers, please. But <laughs> I um, the I, pandemic doesn't end. I'm sorry, I spoiled it for you. <laughs> yeah, I've got my mask in my hand. Um, I ha- have to say how much I really appreciated the footnotes through oh, the yeah. book, and I just wondered if you could talk a bit about your decision uh, with using them. Yeah. Um, that was partly because I was learning, because of all the research I did, a lot of it which was totally not relevant. Well, so not relevant to the book in its final form, but I couldn't kind of quite let go of wanting to share the details. So almost in a kind of very casual way, I mean, without really thinking it through, I just thought, I'm going to throw in some footnotes and see how they work. And then um, someone read it and didn't think they worked and I thought oh no I think they're right I don't I don't think they work and I removed them and then but someone else who then read the next version had read said oh no you need you shouldn't have lost the footnotes they were I loved them and so I actually again I ended up with a lot more of them in general I found that say with the ghosts or the footnotes with things that are little ideas I'm playing with I sometimes was a bit tentative and so it wasn't quite clear what the point of them was so I actually ended up leaning in harder to the footnotes and I was really grateful I did that particularly towards the end when um, writing about Louis um, Everett 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 um, who worked with the wolves for 30 years and like there was no way I could in a natural way incorporate all this information about her history but she was su- such an important part of their lives um, she was there the day Virginia died she was there the, the day Leonard died um, and so you know being able to add footnotes at least making it clear that these people were also really worthy of, of attention was um, something I really enjoyed and then I it was remembered, you know, that the fad for novels that had lots of footnotes and the well, David Foster Wallace being an ob- obvious one and decided to just, you know, really, go really for go it. for it. But um, And I love how you say, you know, Alice did a lot of research about this and then failed to incorporate it in any meaningful way into the novel. <laughs> well, because, I mean, towards the end, I really wanted to have a lot more about Maynard Keynes, partly because his um, work as an economist was so crucial to the modern world during the pandemic and a lot of his theories came back and indeed he's writing about the Spanish flu and um, and his descriptions of um, the impact it was having on people he knew was effectively like this amazing kind of um, testimonial stuff about long COVID, which reminded me of people talking about long COVID. I mean, there was so, his work is so interesting and he is so interesting. <coughs> but there was just, you know... It was already taken 16 years. I was not going to go. So, so um, he is an example of a character I did a lot of research in and actually just ended up removing the scenes because there was no... The next novel? Yeah. No, I'm not going back. I'm not going back to Maynard. No, you're not, He's are on you? His own. Yeah. Um, another question? Come on. <laughs> I have more, but... You can just ask me another one, Em. I don't want oh, to we have one. another no. one. Is this on? Yeah, thanks, guys, for a lovely chat. Um, I was just wanting to know what um, Virginia's uh, feeling towards Leonard's work was. Mm. She, she was very. Um, that's a good question because she was she was very gentle um, about the fact that he could be quite bad, um, and she also. So with The Wise Virgins, which was a very bad novel and and was kind of awful to her, really, because it was about a man who could have gone out with two different women, one of whom 
was a real goer and one of them who wasn't. And it was very obvious what that was all about. Um, and he gave it to her to read when she was breaking down and um, the breakdown got worse. <laughs> Great guy, Alan. Yeah. And I'm um, like, what do you think of my book? <laughs> um, and she wrote very – she wrote – quite nice things about it in, in, in the diary and, and was very considered. And towards his political work, she actually really rated. And, you know, she thought he was a fine thinker. Um, but I think his creative work, she could tell that he wasn't great and she had to be fairly gentle with him. So The Village and the Jungle is weird because that is a really good creative work, but he didn't really replicate that. Also, she became so good, he just stopped trying to do that kind of work. He, st he wrote st some short stories and at a certain point he thought, I'm going to write non-fiction, I can't compete with her because it was just clear to him. He really did think she was a genius and um, uh, so I think he just stepped aside, mm. really. It is a really interesting thing about their relationship because it sort of um, inverts that cliche of the, you know, the masculine genius with the supportive wife in the background enabling him to work because, you know, yeah. Virginia could do what she did in a way because she had... Yeah, learned. and after she died, he took very seriously the job of um, preserving her memory and, um, you know, and spoke to anyone who was researching... PhDs or doing anything, he would, he would spoke to people constantly. He did a lot of work to kind of maintain her reputation and there was a period um, when she was... A lot of people were dismissing her work. I mean, that these writers go in and out of fashion and he would always defend her to the end. This is all despite the fact that he did... Um, and, and another one of the slightly brutal truths I had to wrap my head around when I was writing this, you know, two, about 18 months after... Virginia died, he fell in love with someone else and um, was with her for 30 years, um, even though that was also complicated because she was married to someone else. And Anyway, the English get up to all kinds of things. But, um, but nonetheless, he, he, he did give his heart to another, but he, he, he remained a loyal um, custodian of her, of her work. Mm. And a lot of people hold that against him, actually, because he did try and, um, I suppose, filter the perception of her. So when Vita Sackville-West wanted to, um, in the 50s, I think, wanted to um, put out a book of their, their correspondence, their erotic correspondence, he um, refused to give her, you know, he came up with a whole lot of reasons why that wasn't going to be possible. But clearly it was just he didn't really want that. He was just upset. <laughs> didn't really want it out, out mm. there. So he didn't always manage to just be a kind of objective, yeah. you know, custodian mm. of her memory. Yeah, fascinating. Well, I believe that we are out of time. Four we, noughts. Time's up. Time's up, the screen just <laughs> said. Um, but please buy copies of this brilliant, wonderful, moving, um, just all-round incredible work. Emily, um, thank you. You've been lovely. Sophie will happily sign for you. Uh, if you do think of another question that you would like to ask her, she'll be sitting back there. Um, and please join me in thanking Sophie for joining us. 
You've been listening to Emily Bito in conversation with Sophie Cunningham, recorded on Tuesday the 22nd of September 2022 at the Wheeler Centre as part of the Melbourne City Read series. The Wheeler Centre podcast is produced on the lands of the Wurundjeri Woiwurrung people of the Kulin Nation. You can listen to more podcasts or explore videos, news and our full calendar of events at wheelercentre.com.